free Alexei Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at the Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Alexei Navalny and a form of journalism that has ignited political protests across Russia. Australia wants Google and Facebook to pay up for the news content they search out and put online. The games people play, the Pentagon included, the video games industry is proving to be a useful ally for the American military. And passive-aggressive emails sent with the kindest of regards. Russia watchers are keeping a close eye on Moscow and a developing story in which something has got to give. Will it be the new protest movement, the biggest the country has seen in years, tens of thousands on the streets of Moscow alone, demanding changes at the Kremlin? Will it be Alexei Navalny, the jailed opposition figure who called for the demonstrations? Having survived an apparently state-sanctioned poisoning, Navalny has been pulling the strings from behind bars. Or will it be President Vladimir Putin, who, in a poetic twist, has just had his reputation poisoned by Navalny through an online documentary that paints the president as corrupt, a man of lavish tastes? There is a lot to this story. It's complicated. And what sets it apart from opposition movements in other authoritarian states is the story of Alexei Navalny and his ability, through videos posted online, to tell a story. The kind that Russians don't typically get from their mainstream news media. Our starting point this week is Moscow. When the Russian authorities arrested opposition leader Alexei Navalny yet again, they didn't see this coming in the days that followed. Protests on the streets, and not just Moscow. From St. Petersburg in the west to Vladivostok in the east. Thousands of demonstrators braving sub-zero temperatures, protesters who had more than Navalny on their minds. This protest became so widespread uh, because of general accumulated uh, dissatisfaction. People got angry not only with uh, Navalny's poisoning and Navalny's investigation, they just got angry because they got tired from poverty, from human rights violation, and economic situation plays a really important role here. It's sort of a culmination of a lot of other non-Navalny factors too. The economy has been stagnant, people are unhappy about COVID, you know, the corruption is widely acknowledged as a huge problem. The recent constitutional changes which allow Putin to rule for much longer. Putin era now really feels endless people have kind of reached a breaking point. And amidst all that, when you're in the hands of people who essentially have been caught trying to poison you, Navalny publishes this incredible video of, of Putin's outrageous wealth, his $1.4 billion palace, which covers a site uh, 39 times the size of Monaco. Of course, that's going to strike a chord with the people. Alexei Navalny returned to Moscow January 17th. He had to know he would be arrested and was at the airport. He had just spent five months in Berlin, recovering after being poisoned, an attack that had the Russian intelligence services fingerprints all over it. 
But Navalny went to jail, packing a secret. His team was armed with information. Two days later, they posted a two-hour documentary on YouTube that exposed lavish spending on a presidential palace and alleged corruption at the apex of Russian politics, Vladimir Putin. Что настоящий дворец Путина это не просто вот этот дом, а еще и 7800 гектаров земли, почти 300 гектаров виноградников в четырех разных местах, шато, винные заводы, устричные фермы и бесконечная роскошь. Some of the details in this video are just so crazy. It's become a meme now. The aqua discotheque. There's a secret passage that goes to a view of the sea. A private movie theater. It shows that. The country's security services are protecting this palace. There's a no-fly zone over it. It's really compelling stuff. Putin carefully concealed everything about his personal life. He created sort of an image of politician detached from uh, material goods, from material wealth, who supposedly thinks only about uh, Russia's future, Russia's geopolitical aims, and Ru Russians in general. Navalny's investigation shows that in reality, the person who has been ruling Russia is not much different from other Russian politicians. There was no uh, conclusive evidence showing that uh, Putin actually owned this palace and that this palace would stay his private property when Putin leaves power. As for the luxury itself, well, you know, there are many rich people in Russia who have luxurious real estate. The name of the owner has already popped up several times in the Russian media. There is a rich person who most obviously is the owner of this palace. And uh, in this situation, I don't think uh, the, the palace itself will impress many people. That's the argument the Kremlin and its supporters in the media are putting out, that this story is a decade old and lacking in evidence. But Navalny has given it new life by adding so much detail. Corruption investigations involve complicated paper trails, shadow companies, shadowy figures, and their relationships with politicians. Prior to entering politics, Navalny studied law then securities and exchanges. He understands better than most journalists do how transactions work, where to look for telltale signs of graft. He has a knack for explanation and is not above throwing irreverence, sarcasm and name-calling into the mix. Очень хочется понять, как обычный советский офицер превратился в безумца, помешанного на деньгах и роскоши. Не просто помешанного, а буквально готового разрушать страну и убивать ради своих сундуков с золотом. Plus, his team is creative. Navalny says they acquired blueprints from a builder who worked on the palace, then used drone cameras and computer graphics to fill in the blanks. What Navalny was able to do so spectacularly was to kind of recreate uh, the interior of the palace. And it's just exploded into this kind of vision of, of outsized wealth. Этот зал тоже оборудован небольшой сценой. И удивительное дело, на сцене есть специальное возвышение с шестом. Мы даже себе представить не можем, зачем нужен шест на сцене. Может быть, для новогодней елки? When you're trying to uh, describe complicated schemes, it helps when you can be funny about it. Dissidents could take a, a leaf out of his book. I work in investigations myself, so I know both how difficult this is and how important it is. You know, you can prove 
the worst corruption in the world, but unless people understand what you're talking about, it's not going to have an impact. And Navalny is just brilliant at explaining these really complicated issues. He's just really good at making really compelling uh, investigative videos that are explanatory. The documentary got to Putin in a way that Navalny's previous investigations into the president's inner circle have not. This time, it was about him. Putin responded on camera, which was atypical for the president, who usually dismisses Navalny as that blogger. The sheer number of views the documentary has had, around 100 million, exposed the gaping journalistic holes in Russia's media landscape. Specifically, the television news channels that dare not take on taboo subjects like Vladimir Putin's wealth. There are media outlets, in print, on radio and online, that provide quality reporting on domestic politics. But TV channels are far more state-controlled, and television is where 70% of Russians still get the majority of their news. Russian television framed his poison and like he was lying about that. Никакого отравления на нашей территории не доказано, что не было здесь никакого отравления. And if we have a look at our opinion polls, we will see that this strategy was quite effective. Only 15% of Russians actually believe that he was really poisoned. But the TV audience is aging, TV consumption uh, is decreasing, and trust in TV news has dropped over the past 10 years from 79% to 54%, while trust in online and social media has increased significantly. The Soviet days when Russian citizens' information diet could be controlled from above, those days are over. We're sort of in a more postmodern phase where if you're the Kremlin, you control the most easily accessible things, and that's television. Stuff on social media that contradicts the official narrative, you can't ban it. This stuff spreads and people know about it. But the Kremlin has been effective in sort of throwing things out there into the information space in a way that makes it hard for people to know what's real and what's not. The Western public often confuses old Soviet television with modern Russian television. The breadth of political opinions voiced on the Russian television is actually very wide. People from the American think tank, such as Heritage Foundation, you know, Ariel Cohen, who openly hates Putin, he is on the main channels of Russian television. And newspapers such as Novaya Gazeta has been raising the issue of that virus years before Navalny's documentary was, was produced on this uh, affair. There are many journalists in Russia who actually work better than Navalny, professionals. Navalny is, I would say, a very loud and very successful amateur, but he is not a professional journalist. Amateur or not, Alexei Navalny has proven that a story well told and explained still has the power to change things, move people. As for Navalny's own story, the manufacturing of dissent in Vladimir Putin's Russia, it is a cautionary tale. He remains behind bars. We're going to turn to Australia now, where lawmakers have tabled legislation that, if passed, could force 
giant tech companies like Google and Facebook to pay media outlets for the use of their news content. Tarek Knopf has been tracking that story for us. Tarek, what kind of impact might this law have? Well, the News Media Bargaining Code, as it's called, says that Facebook and Google should pay a fee to use journalistic content from Australian media companies. It also suggests they should pay for links that are shared on their platforms. Both companies, of course, oppose the law. Managing director of Google Australia, Mel Silver, had this to say. Paying for links breaks the way search engines work, and it undermines how the web works too. Google says news companies benefit from the traffic that it generates, and it's now threatening to take down its search engine in Australia. Think of the consequences if it does go dark. Something like 95% of online searches in the country are from Google. And how likely is it that this law will actually pass in Australia's parliament? Well, Australia's treasurer, Josh Friedenberg, says it's inevitable. The prime minister, Scott Morrison, says he's not intimidated by Google's threats. And he added, Australia makes our rules for things you can do in Australia. That's done in our parliament. Now, Google recently struck a similar agreement with some media companies in France to pay for content. So why is the company taking issue with what the Australians are proposing here? Well, it comes down to control, Richard. Last week, Google cut a deal with an organization that represents something like 300 news outlets, among them national dailies like Le Figaro and Le Monde. That agreement means that Google will pay publishers to use their content. But in France, Google gets to set the fee. In Australia, if the two sides fail to reach an agreement, a judge will decide. That's the difference. Okay, thanks, Tarek. Anyone familiar with the term, the military entertainment complex, knows it was coined for Hollywood and the symbiotic relationship that movie studios have long had with the Pentagon. The blockbuster films that glorify American soldiers, subsidized by U.S. taxpayers through all the military hardware that the Pentagon makes available at no cost, as long as the producers make the soldiers look good. However, the military entertainment complex encompasses more than just film and television. Video games now rake in far more money than the film industry does. And this pandemic has populations stuck at home with idle thumbs. Given the demographics at play, the legions of young players at the controls, the U.S. military is in on that action as well. The gaming world has turned into a prime recruiting ground. The Listening Post's Daniel Turi now on the military gaming complex and the messages it is beaming into American homes. We cannot conflate war and military service with this kind of gamified format and with that july 2020 the u.s congress is debating its annual military spending bill the issue in question the pentagon's deployment into competitive online gaming esports in order to recruit young americans right now currently children on platforms such as twitch are bombarded with banner ads that link to recruitment sign-up forms that can be submitted by children as young as 12 years old it began back in 2018 after spending the better part of two decades mired in iraq and afghanistan the army missed its recruitment target by a distance rather than rely on the methods of old blitzing the American airwaves with TV ads, the Pentagon turned to a platform called Twitch, 
estimated number of daily users, 15 million. Twitch is like a digital version of hanging out on the couch with your friends, watching them play video games. So there's one person that's kind of in control of the stream, they're playing a video game, and there's a chat room running on the side, and you talk to them. This new social media that's really taken over in the last few years. So in order to get into that space and talk to kids, the Army, the Navy, uh, the Air Force, and the National Guard have all started esports teams. Esports, people might be really surprised to realize, is one of the fastest growing sectors in the world in terms of entertainment. There are a lot of younger people watching esports, and of course, in the era of the electronic battlefield, the idea of having technologically literate and technologically savvy recruits is obviously really, really important. So that's exactly why you would go there. The idea that this is all about recruitment has been met with military denials, like this one from a member of the Navy's esports team. No, we're not here to recruit. That's that is not the point of this. That's not what the Navy's official Twitch manual says. It states that, quote, everything done on social media should be aimed at making connections between prospects and recruiters. While the Pentagon was new to esports and Twitch in 2018, it was already a video game veteran. In 2002, one year into the Bush administration's so-called war on terror and a vast recruitment drive, the military released a game of its own. America's Army, now in its fourth edition. They spent seven, eight million dollars in its setup and they produced that game as a strategic communication tool with a very high quality development team. Now, in terms of its reach, estimations are that about 18 million people have had an account. The US military itself have done evaluations of the game and regard it as quote unquote one of the most successful recruitment tools that they themselves have ever devised. Most importantly, America's army is free. So in an era where, uh, you know, video games cost 50 and $60, if you can get something like America's Army that's comparable to the best shooters out there for free, then you're gonna get it. Especially if you're 16 and you don't have a whole lot of uh, disposable income. America's Army is an anomaly in the gaming world. Most games are produced independently and they have never been more popular. In terms of revenue, the video games industry is now larger than the movie and music sectors combined, with two and a half billion players around the world. That includes two in every three Americans. And franchises where you play a US soldier or spy, like Call of Duty or Battlefield, regularly top the charts. I know you won't fail us. which leads game developers to work closely with military consultants who also contribute to the storylines and it's here that the US military and intelligence agencies score another win depictions of American history that airbrush their actions and demonize their enemies this is Call of Duty Black Ops one of the best-selling games of all time I'm playing as a CIA officer during the Bay of Pigs invasion, the real-life attempt by the US to overthrow the Cuban government in the 1960s. My mission is to kill Fidel Castro, just as the real CIA tried and failed to do. But the game adds a fictional motive for the murder. Here, the virtual Castro is involved in a plot to ship a chemical weapon to the Vietnamese. 
which conveniently gives the US a pretext for the next thing you do in the game, invade Vietnam. A new Call of Duty comes out every year. In 2019, we've got modern warfare, and in this game, there are, is a mission called the Highway of Death, where you are in a fictional Middle Eastern country, and in the universe of the video game, uh, Russia had invaded this country. If they try to escape to the mountains, there is only one road, Tariq Amut, the highway of death. The Russians bombed it during the invasion, killing the people trying to escape. Now, that happened in real life, but America did it during the first Gulf War. Uh, after Saddam's army was defeated, it was retreating uh, out of Kuwait. The American military bombs the army as it's retreating. They were hit where they stood, first by U.S. bombs, then by tanks. But because this is a Call of Duty game and because America can't do any wrong, uh, that atrocity has to be pulled out and reattributed to Russia. I grew up Dutch-Egyptian, um, Dutch and that meant that at some point in my life, I started realizing that in most of these games, I was playing as people that looked like my Dutch friends. English ass We know you're speaking. And I was always shooting people that looked like my Arab friends. And over time, I've kind of come to realize that the, the only way you can portray something like the US military as uh, an absolute good is if you flatten everything else into an absolute evil. So the Arabs, the Russians, the, the South Americans sort of get flattened into this uh, nest of, of evil, of terrorism, that the US military goes in and straightens out. Launching There have been exceptions. Spec Ops The Line, released in 2012, highlights the human cost of war. It even shows U.S. soldiers using the deadly chemical white phosphorus as they did in the real Iraq war. Through the game, the player is both figuratively and psychologically destroyed by the violence that they commit. You don't mind me asking, what was it like? How'd you survive all this? Who said I did? Now what is really interesting as well is that this is a game made by a German developer. So it raises some quite interesting issues about about perspective there, about whether it took a German developer to make that game. And it also is interesting because not very many games like that have been made since. It's important to realize that video games are, are obviously this mix of art and technology and commerce, and that in the end, uh, a lot of these games cost tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to make. So for every game that gets to play a little bit more uh, risky with their narrative. There will also be a number of games that tell the same old story that gamers recognize and that they have come to be comfortable in. Over the past two decades, the Pentagon has proven itself to be more adept at public relations than it has been at fighting wars. Despite the costly failures on the battlefield, support for the military remains sky high. There's no way to quantify how much video games have to do with that. But if you follow the money, the Pentagon clearly thinks they're worth the investment. It has a new game in production, America's Army 5. As for esports... This amendment is specifically to block recruitment practices and funding for recruitment practices on platforms such as Twitch.tv. Congress voted that amendment down, leaving the military free to continue its virtual offensive. For now, at least, 
paramilitary gaming complex is here to stay. And finally, we've all been at the receiving end of that passive-aggressive email, the one that, when deconstructed and decoded, sends a message that says so much more than it appears to. And nobody does passive-aggressive quite like the British. So Tega Alexander gets it. He's a content creator based in the UK, big on TikTok because of videos like this one. It's been viewed more than two and a half million times. In the back and forth that Alexander creates, you can just feel the tension, the underlying aggressiveness that's dressed up in the most civil of language. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.